This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. 23 to 28 and 12, 35 to 37. Now, by way of introduction, what is the common denominator of these two remarkable passages? Now, one of them is they're both from Mark. That's not, my, that's not the answer. <laughs> What's another common denominator? Mention of David. Yeah, it's not so obvious at first, unless you read the, the, the sermon title here, the remarkable use of the greater David theme in Mark. I might have given you a hint, but yeah. The, the mention of David in both passages is what I have as an answer. Um, so let's explore this idea or theme together. In the text that was first read from 1 Samuel 21, David is allowed to encroach upon the priestly prerogative of eating the showbread, the, the table of pres- the uh, bread of presence. If the earthly king, who was ostensibly a non-priest, could eat consecrated bread without being condemned, how much more should Jesus' starving disciples... And by the way, only Mark mentions that they were in need. They both, all of them say he's hungry, but they said he was, they were in need. In other words, they're really hungry. My wife, your wife's here. I'm glad she's here today. She doesn't like it when I say I'm starving to death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they were here in this text, apparently. Uh, so how much more should, could they eat grain on the Sabbath? Now, the rabbis in the later Mishnah and Talmud forbade 39 things on the Sabbath, including reaping. Now, worth caution here. We can't be sure these traditions, because they're later on, were exactly what we have in the time of Jesus. But they do give us some idea here, and they may be similar. Um, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Uh, actually, we'll talk about it just now, because I'm reading off your handout. <laughs> Uh, Jesus is not justifying the disciples' act, for it's really not obvious if they broke any Old Testament law. If you're reading uh, Deuteronomy 23, 24 to 25, they were allowed, if they were in need, to pluck grain. It doesn't say, except on the, on the Sabbath. It says you could go through and pluck grain on the uh, Sabbath. So I don't think he was trying to justify their act because there's really no need to say they, they broke any law. But he was dealing with the Pharisaic interpretation of the law. In the story in Samuel, the regulations of the law were set aside, set aside for David and his companions. And, and Jesus is building the case that he is greater than David. And so regulations, whether legitimate or not, can be set aside for him and his companions. Okay, as I mentioned uh, about the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, they, the Talmud said, if you roll wheat in your hands to remove the husk, it is sifting, and that is forbidden. If you rub the heads of wheat, it is threshing, 
and it's forbidden. If you clean out the shell, it is sifting, and that is forbidden. If you throw the chaff into the air, that is winnowing, it is forbidden. So just in picking and rolling and rubbing and discarding, they had been reaping, threshing, sifting, grinding, winnowing, and preparing food. Talk about nitpicking. And their real question, the real underlying issue, as, as John MacArthur mentions, is why do you and your disciples live in such open defiance of our religion? So it's a question of authority. But, but what when the disciples were, but what they were doing, as I, as I said, only violated the extreme traditions of men, not Deuteronomy 23 or any other passage in the Old Testament law. Um, uh, the, the law allowed those in need to pluck grain, but not to harvest it without any restriction as to the day or time. So Jesus' counter-argument was, if David could be allowed by a priest to violate a divine symbol, the bread of presence, even on, perhaps even on a Sabbath, it doesn't clearly say that, but because of the analogy of here, it could have been even on a Sabbath, then the, the argument from the greater to the lesser is, if they could violate a greater divine prescription, certainly the disciples in Christ should violate a lesser human-imposed uh, prescription. Now let's look at Jesus' allusion in 1 Samuel 21.1. He says this occurred at Nob, N-O-B. This is only a paraphrase. This is the, the whole account that was read in 1 Samuel 21. As Jesus recounts it, it's, it's a paraphrase of that. Because in the, in the details are several uh, variations from the Old Testament. And comparing the Old Testament account uh, there's one glaring problem. What was that glaring problem? Who the high priest was. Remember over in 1 Samuel 21 it said the priest was whom? Ahimelech. Here in, in the New Testament says, Jesus says that the priest was Abiathar. Now, let's be sure to realize the reference to David's visit to the high priest, whether, whether it was Ahimelech or Abiathar, is significant. David had eaten the consecrated bread as an exception, and that was the main point. However, he, he apparently was citing David's violation of the Torah not as an excuse but as a precedent. Now we're going to come back to this, this, this glaring issue about who was priest here just shortly. But let's talk about the, the, the bigger point. I like what uh, Edwards in his commentary, in the Pillar commentary, pointed out. A couple of things he pointed out that I appreciated. I built a, 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 some of the main points of my message over is that David's violation of a Torah was not an excuse, but as a precedent. Making allusion to David, he's inviting a comparison between uh, his own person and Israel's king, the messianic prototype, because David is a type of Christ. Uh, this is the first of several references or allusions to David and Mark's gospel that help to define what kind of son of God Jesus is. Over Mark ten forty seven, blind Bartimaeus. We'll call Jesus son of David. You know, have mercy upon me. And later in the temple in Mark chapter 12, which is the text, the second text that we read, Jesus will broach the issue by questioning the religious leaders. How is it possible for the Messiah to be both David's son and Lord? Now, one of the synopsis, I think it was Matthew, it actually, they initiated, he asked them this question. It was a question and answer. But here he goes ahead and uh, just independently starts talking about that, assuming that this was the context. The implication is that the Messiah is the son of David because he descended from David, but the Lord of David because he has higher authority. So 
issue of authority. Just as we said, the authority of the scribes and Pharisees, you know, they have these uh, nitpicking uh, Sabbath regulations. But here Jesus has a higher authority as being a greater David. The, the, uh, the appeal to David in Mark chapter 2 in our initial text, our main text, begins to define Jesus' authority as a royal son of God that's been anticipated since the reign of David. However, if Jesus is wrong on this detail about who was high priest, perhaps this is not a real story. Maybe it's a parable or an allegory. And there be no real understanding, much less valid application of the text. Perhaps he's mistaken on a whole lot of things. Matter of fact, the issue in Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 26, seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back in Bart Ehrman's testimony of what I'm going to call his counter-conversion. His transformation from an evangelical believer, who went to Moody Bible Institute, went to Wheaton College. Uh, his uh, transformation from an evangelical believer to a happy agnostic and renowned New Testament scholar. I want to share with you a brief testimony of uh, Bart Ehrman. Now, if you've been in New Testament studies, or if you're studying the Bible very long, You've heard of Bart Ehrman. You may have heard it even if you're just familiar with the internet or familiar with the media. Because he is a renowned... uh, Bruce Metzger used to be the renowned New Testament scholar at Princeton for many, many years. Uh, But Bart Ehrman Ehrman has kind of taken over that position. Okay, he he documents in his book, Misquoting Jesus. uh, He talks about going... His his conversion. And like... I can't remember if it was... uh, in a Bible study in Kansas, and he went off to Moody Bible Institute, graduated with a diploma. Then he went to Wheaton College. Of course, you know, when he went to even the school, he said, "Don't go. To, you might not want to go to school. I might, you know, you might shake your faith a little bit or something. Go over there to Wheaton College." But he went ahead and went, went and did fine. You know, it's an evangelical institution, Billy Graham and all that's a very fine institution. And then when he said he wanted to go further and study, he went to Princeton. He said, you might be careful there. You might shake your face. He said, I'll be fine. Went over to Princeton. And uh, his either first or second semester, I think it says second semester, he had a course in the exegesis of the gospel of Mark. Now, I don't want to compare myself with Bart Ehrman for, in many ways, but uh, the first Greek class I ever had here, uh, besides the grammar class, okay, so it's, and I actually had my grammar class at CBC. So the first grammar, the first Greek course I ever had here, I think, if my memory served me correctly, and that's that's debatable, <laughs> was on, on Mark. Dr. Bryan, we went, we translated the whole Gospel of Mark. So here he was doing his studies on the Gospel of Mark, and he did his exegesis on Mark chapter two. And so he said, you know, I did a lot of study on this. I knew that my professor would understand this, you know, the, this discrepancy. When he, he, some, of the, some of the theories we're going to talk about in just a moment, he came up with one of those you know, discussions is that a, this is a, the problem about Abiathar and Ahimelech is, as we're going to see in just a moment, I'm not sure he mentioned this, but Mark 12, 26, there, there is a, a, a discussion over there where Jesus talks about the gods, the uh, Lord of the living, not of the dead. And they were challenging him about the resurrection. He, he said, have you not read over there in, in Exodus in the passage about the bush, in the passage about the burning bush? And so apparently, as I was reading over, this is kind of the conclusion he came up with. That 
This is the same instance there. It's not talking about Abiathar. It's in the, in the general passage about that. He said he thought his, his professor would, as a good Christian scholar, who obviously, like him, would never think there was a gem and error in the Bible, would be pleased with that. But at the end of my paper, paper, he made a simple one-line comment. He said, maybe Mark just made a mistake. And I, and I said, I realized I had to do some pretty fancy exegetical foot roping um, uh, footwork to get around this problem. So I said, hmm, maybe Mark did make a mistake. And once I made that admission, he said the floodgates opened up. I thought about over Mark chapter 4 where Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. And I said, nobody really believes that. So then maybe Mark, Jesus was mistaken about that. And over there when Mark says Jesus was crucified the day after the Passover meal, and John says it was died the same day, then maybe Mark was mistaken about that. And so it opened up the floodgates. So, I mean, it's a sad commentary of this counter-conversion, but this is, this is to help us to see the context of why I'm going to spend some time here on this technical problem. Because you might say we're spending too much time talking about a minor nitpicking issue. Do you see that the Pharisees were nitpicking and details of scripture are important so the next thing we're going to discuss is the remarkable problem of Abiathar the high priest here mark two twenty six, that mark records jesus statement in contrasting to the old testament reference in first samuel 21 where it says ahimelech was the priest so first of all good sound biblical hermeneutics we want to look at the old testament context however this is almost a mistake here <laughs> because this seems to heighten the problem the main issue is that Abiathar was not the high priest when David went into the sanctuary and ate the showbread, since it mentions Ahimelech. It doesn't mention Abiathar. Furthermore, Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. Although he was, a high, he was a priest when this incident occurred, he was not the high priest, but would become so later on, after Saul murdered his father, or, or Doeg's, the, the accomplice of Saul, murdered his father. It looks like the son has been twitched with the father. And thirdly, Himelech's ministry was in Nob, while Bither's ministry would be particularly in Jerusalem. And let me just mention another thing here. I didn't mention my notes here. Also in our reading, you notice that he mentions the others with him. Well, at first it sounded like he was all alone. He said, you're here alone? Remember that? But then later on he says, well, but the men, have they kept themselves? And so we kind of get by implication that there were others with him. But at first it seems like we've got another problem. Jesus says there's nobody there, but the scripture says that we're alone. So the context does help us a little bit. But there, you know, it does complicate the problem, at least on the surface. Now, the next thing is to understand some basic views suggested to address the problem. Number one, a possible scribal error. If you look at the what we call the BHS text, which is the Hebrew Bible, what we normally study and use, uh, we find that there are no textual variants there. So it doesn't seem to be... A, a, uh, error. Nor, if you look at the Septuagint, that's the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek version, doesn't seem to be any variation from the text there. Okay. Uh, next, possible manuscript error in the New Testament text. Examination of the textual data, according to Dan Wallace, who's an, an eminent authority, does not indicate this switch is a textual error, even though the Western text does, does omit the priest's name. Okay, you have in, the, in New Testament textual criticism, you have different families of text. And the Western is one of those family uh, of manuscripts. 
Now, the Western text, according to Wallace, does sometimes correct or add to the text in various books. When the Western text reading remains unsupported by other textual tradition, is not taken up, is not taken as very weighty. In fact, here the Western text follows the other synoptics, Matthew and Luke. Both do not have the mention to the high priest at all. Doesn't mention a author, doesn't mention the high priest name at all. Um, thus there appears to be solid evidence that wrote that Mark did write a biathar. Now, I tend to agree with Dr. Helwig here about the priority of Matthew, but it is interesting here, it would make sense how if Mark wrote first, it would be easy to see how that Matthew and Luke might have deliberately omitted this because of the problem, so as not to impugn the character of Jesus. And uh, probably the Western text went along with, for the ride there on that and, and decided that that's, not, that's good. All right, so... Uh, doesn't appear to be a textual, the textual problem in the Old Testament, New Testament doesn't seem to be the, to be the answer, even though the, there are a few manuscripts that don't have that. Another second idea would be a historical mistake by Mark or by Jesus or his source. Remember that the traditional view is Peter speaking from memory. The the former a mistake by Mark or Jesus is a conclusion of the critics, you know, a la Bart Ehrman. Uh, and often by Jewish sources, but as evangelical believers, this doesn't seem like a valid option. Unless, perhaps, we talk about Peter making a mistake from memory. This is a view of Brooks in the New American Commentary. If you look down at view number four, source critical confusion. Uh, if a mistake by the source Peter, as related in, uh, in Aramaic, this would be based on a presumptive Aramaic oral tradition. So we have a lot of theories going on here. You know, the, the idea of the certain traditions about Jesus circulated orally and it circulated in Aramaic and then put in writing to in Greek. So in that in that transmission, and if you throw in the, the memory of, of Peter, uh, or even uh, when the scribe wrote it down, it's a possibility, you know, the scribe writing it down could have misunderstood that. And so it's a possibility that, you know, the Aramaic word Abba, that's used in the New Testament, Abba Father, well, one of view is it originally had Abba Abiathar. That'd be the father of Abiathar. And Abba Father, the first part of the, the AB and the AB are the same. and be very easy for that to, to be written uh, as, uh, instead of the father of Abiathar as Abiathar. So that's, that's a possibility. And that's the view of Brooks in the New American Commentary. But it is speculative because we don't have any manuscript evidence for that. But... In this option, Mark recorded accurately without error what Peter said. This would be similar to Acts chapter 7. One view is when Stephen made a statement about the chronology over there that, uh, that Luke was recording exactly what Stephen said, but Stephen didn't you know, check accurately his facts on that. But the main message would be the same whether a Himalach or a Bible. Now let's go back up to number three. Third position is intentional midrash by Jesus or Mark. Midrash was a rabbinical method of interpretation. Uh, and so, in the patristic uh, interpretation, look, Jerome, the church father Jerome, he attempts to deal with the overall phenomena of Scripture as he finds, finds them by making a distinction between falsification on one hand and inexact, inexactness on the other. Uh, Craig Evans points this out, that Jerome believes that the sense of the Scripture 
is scriptures is always true, even if the actual words themselves are inexact, inexact, imprecise, or in some cases inaccurate. Thus, a translator, whether a New Testament writer or Jerome, remember Jerome translated the Vulgate, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, that there's a difference between a falsification and being a little bit exact or generalities. The translator may occasionally depart from the actual wording to convey more accurately what is believed to be the intended meaning. So that's that idea of midrash. Okay, uh, as far as source critical confusion, not only do they have this about Brooks's view on the, the Aramaic oral tradition, but Craig Evans, uh, Mulholland in the, in the Dictionary of Jesus in the Gospels, and um, GWP, whoever that is, uh, leans to that direction, uh, of confusion in the Old Testament tradition, where there's apparently two versions of a textual tradition. If you study in the Qumran scrolls and the manuscripts there, you find you have many different text types. The analogy would be that like today, when we read the text of Scripture. Now, in my generation, you know, it's almost always everybody had a King James Version or something there, therein, or almost always never would read from the pulpit from anything but the King James Version. Okay, I won't say too much about that, but I'm not too disappointed about that change that we've had. Uh, but today, you know, you may have an ESV, you may have a King James, you may have a New King James, you may have whatever, we can, a whole plethora of versions. So that gets sometimes a, a problem for us, but we have the few Bibles, and we have our electronic uh, devices that we can quickly compensate, right? But back at this time, you know, some of the, the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, we sometimes wonder, now see, the the English versions tend to gloss it over, not necessarily for a bad reason, but for consistency. If you study in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all that, you'll find that there are frequently minor differences in the New Testament quotes of the Old Testament. And, you know, there's different reasons for that. But one of them is going to be because of the different versions of the Hebrew Bible that you had back there. So uh, the Masoretic text is a... The traditional Old Testament text, but it's built on other various versions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Sometimes in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, you have manuscripts of the Hebrew that agrees with the Septuagint against the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is your traditional Hebrew Bible. Anyway, that's a complex issue there. But uh, there are two traditions represented. In the text that we read, it says Abiathar, I mean, excuse me, it says Ahimelech was the priest. And this is in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. But there's also a minor tradition in which Ahimelech, or in some manuscripts it says Abimelech, is said to be the son of Abiathar who survives and serves David along Zadok. 2 Samuel 8, 17, 1 Chronicles 18, 16, and then over in chapter 24. Um, now Mark 2, 26 seems to follow this minor tradition. While this is inconclusive and susceptible to other interpretations, it's possible to view the presence of Abiathar here not as a mistake of Jesus or Mark, but it's merely reflecting Jesus and Mark's acquaintance with a minor tradition. It would just be like if I went to preach at a King James-only church, which was probably doubtful for two reasons, many reasons, and I decided to read from the King James Version, a passage that I personally didn't believe that was even correct. Just tried to meet to, uh, you know, speak to them. So, you know, maybe Jesus just accommodated here. You know, the, this is the, the text of the, the passage today. 
So anyway, this is what I lean to. Another reason that I lean to this is because if you study about the, the Hebrew text of First and Second Samuel, uh, there are other problem areas, issues there. Like in First Samuel thirteen verse one, and some of the versions don't make this clear. But how many, how old was Saul when he began to reign, and how many years he began to reign? You know, say so the, the Hebrew text says he was. Um, like a year old or two years old and began to in, in rain two years or something. It's something really tough far out. But even the Septuagint doesn't help us to restore that. So we have to, there's guesswork there. So we're not saying, okay, let me make it clear here. We're not saying that the Bible and its original manuscripts were in error. If you study any doctrinal statement, confession, or whatever, it'll say that we believe in, the, you know, some believe more loosely uh, about the scripture, but we believe in the inerrancy, doctrine of inerrancy and fallibility of scripture, as in the original manuscripts. Are you with me on that? So we're saying it's not any misunderstanding. There's not anything in the original manuscripts that's a problem, but the problem is we don't have those original manuscripts, and we have sometimes in copying there was mistakes that came in secondarily. Anyway, so to me that that makes logical sense. Whether this is the case or not, there are the dual traditions. Of the Old Testament is a good Bible possibility. Okay, let's go to view number five, or section number five. Hermeneutical issues. The translation when Abiathar was high priest is incorrect and needs to be changed. The three main suggestions have been made here. A, since there was no chapter and verse numberings for citing scripture in Jesus' day, should be understood to be in the section of Samuel entitled Abiathar, since this section explains how Abiathar joined David. Similar to the usage in Mark 12, 26 that I mentioned to you a while ago, where Jesus specifies a particular portion of Moses' writing with the phrase, Epi two by two, about the bush. Now, you'll pardon me here, but Jesus was not beating about, <laughs> was not beating about the bush here, but uh, apparently he was using a reference back to the section of Scripture that's about the burning bush. And this is a view of Mulholland and in, in, uh, the Dictionary of Jesus of the, uh, and the Gospels. And however, Walter Kaiser argues that this is a very awkward expression. He's not arguing this at Mark twelve twenty six. I checked some of the main versions that I consult: the Holman, the NASB, the ESV, the New King James. Many many of the basic translations all agree over at Mark twelve twenty six. But the Greek is not quite as clear here in in um, Mark chapter two, uh, Mark chapter two that we're dealing with, Kaiser argues that it's a most a very awkward way of expressing it here in chapter two. To mean this, the Greek phrase "abather" should have been placed in Mark two twenty five right after "Have you never read?" We have that not, but it's in a different place, and so it's not as likely to be the solution here. Although some have, have suggested it, I believe if I remember, I didn't put this in my notes here, Rob Plummer. If you're not familiar with Rob Blummer's Daily Dose of Greek, then I recommend that as, as a source. Uh, a Daily Dose of Greek, he, he comes up with that as, I think, a solution for a miracle. Anyway, he addresses it. Okay, uh, under B, a proleptic use of the name of a high priest, Abiathar. P-R-O-L-E-P-T-I-C. The proleptic use of the name of the high priest, Abiathar. Gleason Archer, in his book, uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, uh, Linsky, Linsky, the older author, Timothy P. Jones, in misquoting 
truth, the guide to the fallacies of Bart Ehrman's uh, misquoting Jesus. Uh, this is the view they come up with. When Abiathar became high priest, who became high priest was alive. All right, so this is proleptic. Uh, this is going to be like um, when uh, President Obama was a little boy in Africa. <laughs> uh, so he wasn't president when he was in Africa, right? <laughs> but he's president now. Proleptic use. Okay, uh, so that's one view. So the idea would be like in the days of the father of Abiathar the priest, or in the childhood of Abiathar the priest. Now, some have suggested, you know, he was there in the, he was there playing around in the temple courtyard. But I personally think this is um, doing some exegetical foot footwork here, like like uh, Bar Ehrman was saying on this view. As Walter Kaiser explains, the Greek phrase as it stands would would uh, express an idea so unclearly and awkwardly that it is highly unlikely to be the meaning here. Okay, next, this is a view of uh, Bauer Art Gingrich. Uh, this is our standard uh, Greek uh, uh, Greek lexicon. And some scholars, though Dan Wallace does so very cautiously, take the prepositional phrase uh, beginning with ep, epi, the, as meaning in the days of Abiathar the high priest. Although Mark apparently does not employ the temporal use of this preposition. Okay, when we say the temporal use, what are we talking about? Time. Okay, so we're talking about the temporal use. When Abiathar was high priest would be temporal. In the days of Abiathar would be temporal. Uh, The construction epi plus the genitive noun is frequently used with the temporal sense outside of Mark with a meaning similar to in the days of. And BDAG lists numerous biblical and patristic references. And you can look over that Luke 4.27. In the time of Elisha, Luke 3, 2, in the time of the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, and even lists Mark 2, 26. But Wallace says two questions remain. Can any of these texts mean in the time of is distinct from when? That's the issue. In the Net Bible, and I put this in my bibliography, but in the Net Bible, they come up with uh, three possibilities, but they pretty much go to the last and saying they think that the Greek probably does say... um, when, uh, when Abiathar was high priest, and they're just saying it's, we don't really know the resolution to that. So, in, but BDAG does um, does list this as an option. Um, he said, Wall says, if so, do any of them have epi plus the uh, epi plus the genitive proper noun followed by a common noun without the article? Does that examine all the data supplied by BDAG? Luke three two looks to be the closest parallel to our text. Even though high priest comes before the two names, the grammatical meaning differs when the proper name comes second, no article is required. These two men did not function as high priest simultaneously. Since the regular event of the word of the Lord coming to John the Baptist was during the high priesthood, it seems to be a clear text in support of the general time frame in the days of. He says more work needs to be done, but this is a, a certain this is not to be rejected. So, in conclusion, I think this has a valid possibility, especially since some of the Greek scholars look highly upon it. But I prefer the V4B about two textual traditions. However, in the final analysis, as Kaiser includes, one must reverently say that the precise solution is not known. And then J.A. Alexander, in his old commentary on Mark, he makes a couple of comments that I'll paraphrase. 
He says, even if no solution could be given of this discrepancy, it would be absurd to let it shake our faith in the substantial truth of either narrative. Even if the passage be retained in its ordinary form, there are several possible solutions, any of which is far more likely than the supposition of a contradiction or blunder. And then secondly, he says, but on the other hand, let's do not arbitrarily just select one. You know, I'll give you five. And actually, these are, there's more than that. This is just, this is just the main ones. You know, we don't want to play pin the tail on the donkey here and say, okay, which one of these are we going to choose? Uh, so Kaiser says, rather than arbitrarily choosing, perhaps you should say we honestly don't know what the answer is, nor are we likely ever to know. But he says, in that case, the verse makes plain that our knowledge is always partial so that our trust must remain in God rather than what we know. Okay, secondly, principles in dealing with problem passages from the Old Testament and the Gospels. Number one, understand the con- Old Testament context. And we said sometimes that's a double-edged sword, but here, normally, that's very significant. Number two, understand the New Testament context. Never flippantly ignore the details of a text, nor, nor let the details overshadow the main message. There's a fine balance in there. Now, as, as I said this morning, you probably think we've done too much on nitpicking on this and these various issues. But Bart Ehrman... You know, he's not going to agree with what I've come up with, but somebody like Bart Ehrman, who's a potential Bart Ehrman, they might appreciate us dealing with some of these problem issues. Okay, um, people are struggling with the veracity of the biblical text. However, let us focus ultimately on the message of a text. Consider, as we've already noted, the identity of the high priest really makes no essential difference in the main message that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Issues of breaking the rule about a layperson eating consecrated bread and its application to Jesus' disciples breaking the Sabbath regulations. Okay, uh, under C, read the text both vertically and horizontally. Okay, uh, reading it vertically, the message of Mark, chapter 2, 23 to 28, in its literary context, is the conclusion to chapter 2 where Jesus is identified by another title. Verse 28 the last verse of our text says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So that's the main focus here. The authority of the Son of Man even over the Sabbath as opposed to the nitpicking rules and regulation of the Pharisees. He's already been referred to as the Son of Man back in chapter 2 verse 10. You know, when our, not our Pharisee, but our good friend Brett Brewer, the lawyer, right, who came? He gave us he gave us a better understanding than the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees over there about the Son of Man who could forgive sins. Although this could refer to his humanity, in the Aramaic phrase, Son of Man just means you're a human being, like in Psalm eight, to some extent. But it could also be a messianic title drawn from Daniel seven verse thirteen. That's the reason we read that this morning about the one, the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds in great glory. Okay, that uh, Daniel 7 is more likely to be that reference. Okay, reading horizontally. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about looking at the other synoptics. Get yourself a harmony of the Gospels. You have hard copies of that. If you have Logos, we have some options there on, some, on, the, on the harmonies of the Gospels. Read horizontally. Notice the unusual title, Lord of the Sabbath, is also utilized by Matthew and Luke. Furthermore, compared to the other two synoptics, Mark is unique in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Neither one of those include that. Now, if you take a 
Matthew's priority, we're saying Mark omitted that. If you're taking Mark's priority, you're saying the other two added. I mean, uh, pardon me, the other way around. If you're taking the priority of Mark, you're saying that Mark had it, but the other two decided that they would not emphasize that. So the emphasis of Mark seems to emphasize the universality of the benefits of the Sabbath principle, not only for Israel, but for the Romans. Remember, he talks about immediately and quickly and man of action. Uh, and the theory is he wrote primarily like the Romans and the Gentiles. And so, but here it's not just Lord of the Sabbath as it applies to Jews, but also for the Romans and the Gentiles, to the Greek, as Paul would say later on, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. In my opinion, this may build off the use of the term Son of Man, Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8 talks about, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him, the Son of Man that you visit him. It's a glorious hymn of praise. Probably David was writing that, looking out the night stars and the dominion that man had over there. But in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews, talks about Jesus being the Son of Man and that what was lost in the fall, the image of God, was restored potentially through Jesus. The marvelous creation there. Messianic application in Hebrews chapter 2 is that Christ's incarnation, His suffering and His death, as He would restore the dominion man lost in the fall, fall. So in Mark 2.28, Jesus, as the greater David, is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, D, consider the historical cultural background. This implicit reference to the greater David, both priests, chapter 2 and king in chapter 12, the two verse chapters, sections we read, is consistent with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Old Testament expectations. When the Qumran Scrolls first came to light, there was much interest in reference to two messiahs, one priestly and the other royal. One text says, until there come the prophet and the messiahs of Aaron and of Israel. This dual messianic expectation, though, was not unique. It was envisioned by the Old Testament prophets, especially Jeremiah and Zechariah. Jeremiah anticipates a righteous branch of David in chapter 23, but also a a faithful priest in chapter 33, 15 through 18. So it's interesting that in chapter 33, uh, 15 through 18, and hopefully that's not a misprint. I know Jeremiah 23 talks about that. Maybe that's not a misprint, but anyway, 15 through 18. I think it's. I think that's probably correct. That it mentions both uh, the branch of David and the faithful preach priest in this text that we're talking about. And then in Zechariah, there's a couple of passages over there in chapter four and chapter six. The two olive trees, the two branches. Uh, you have Zerubbabel, the governor, and you have uh, also Joshua, the priest. These are the two, and the coming in chapter 6 of the man whose name is Branch, you'll build a temple, and a priest by his throne. You get the dual aspect of that. Psalm 110, which uh, probably should have us to read, Psalm 110, 1 through 4. Let's look over at that text. It's a very significant text. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what Jesus quoted in Mark 12. But notice the larger context. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 2a. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. See there in the, that Messianic passage. You have Jesus as Lord. And as uh, ruler, king. But you also have him as the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which in Hebrews chapter 7 is built on that. And so when Jesus talks about 
David was not condemned for eating the showbread. Uh, we find that earlier on, or I guess it would be I'm thinking later on in, in the text in 2 Samuel, when David brought the uh, ark up and he danced before Saul's daughter, his wife, I forget her name right now, which one it was, but anyway, he, he danced before, before there and, and exposed himself. And he was not condemned for offering a sacrifice. Whereas Uzziah, the king, when he offered a sacrifice in there, he was spitting with leprosy. And so uh, one possibility is because David is the prototype of the Messiah. And in Psalm 110, partial fulfillment is that David is of a higher order, at least potentially of Melchizedek, building off of Melchizedek, who's the king and priest of Salem, most high God over there in Genesis. It's quoted in, in uh, the New Testament there. Okay, so as we approach Palm Sunday, we see that Mark acknowledges that the crowd was ex- expecting a messianic son of David. Mark 11 is also the other two synoptics. But he never claims to be the son of David. For he primarily, his primary focus in his first coming was as a suffering servant. Mark 10, 45, you know, the often considered to be the, the key verse of uh, purpose verse for uh, the text. And, and Dr. Helwig mentioned and emphasized that. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve as a servant, to give his life as a ransom for many. So he emphasizes Jesus as a man of action, as a suffering servant, a la Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 3 in the Old Testament. Uh, however, in his final coming, he will certainly come in the clouds with great glory as Son of Man. Mark 13, 26. This is parallel. This is the Olivet Discourse. Of course, Mark's version of it. In the, Mark 13, 26, in the context of verse 24, In those days the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He'll send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds into the earth to the ends of the heavens. It also mentions again in Mark 14, 62. Son of Man coming on the clouds with great glory. So this, this uh, developed both of these themes here. Under E, develop familiarity with good resources. Uh, a very limited bibliography I've written on the back of the order of worship. There are some resources that apply to this text and apply to general studies of Bible difficulties you can look at. Sorry I didn't get the chance to go in more depth on that. And then as far as a concluding, couple of concluding applications. Number one, with Mark, let us also be faithful to present Christ as both suffering servant and as risen son of man. He's already come as servant to give himself as a ransom for many, but he will return as son of man to bring judgment upon those who fail to receive him. And secondly, let us not forget to be diligent in our study of scriptures, not only to present Christ in all his titles as a God-man, Let's also be careful to attention to historical and or geographical details as a help or to avoid any potential hindrance to those reading or listening to Scripture. Now, Mark chapter 10, where Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, comes, talks about Jericho. In one passage, it talks about he's going into Jericho. In one synopsis, somebody's going out of Jericho. And I think, if I remember correctly, one says there are two blind men, one says one blind man. So you got all this, what's called synoptic problems there. So, these are legitimate issues that somebody's just reading the Bible and say, okay, pastor, okay, brother, 
If you believe the Bible, how, what, what's going on here? It's just a genuine remark. So we need to be diligent. We need to be prepared, read the scripture, say the scripture as teachers and pastors. Let's bite the bullet and study Greek. Are there any amens out there? Let's bite the bullet and study Hebrew. <laughs> uh, textual criticism, hermeneutics, apologetics. So we don't need to apologize about our Christian faith, but competently defend the reliability of Scripture. Okay, you're dismissed.